Another pot of coffee is brewing and my fifth cup is almost finished. So that means it's time for Not Before Coffee. I'm your host, Ray, self-confessed bookworm, film addict, hermit, long-term depression sufferer and very honest caffeine fiend. Today is nearly the end of February. I have no idea where the last two months have gone. And if you're anything like me, you are probably feeling very much the same. One minute it was January the 1st and we're going, oh, 2021, it's going to be amazing. The next minute is, it's what now? The end of February? How is that possible? Well, one day follows the next and when you're working... One day follows the next, follows the next, and you're just longing for the weekend. And those weekends add up. So today is, as I record this, it is the 24th of February. Wow. I have been my age, my new age for just over a week. And I am sitting down to talk to you about a few things. You may have noticed the clues that I posted this week on Twitter for the film. And congratulations to Griff and Two Takes Podcast, who both correctly guessed, given my random clues, that was a really good guess, that I am going to be talking about 2015's Mr. Wright, starring Sam Rockwell and Anna Kendrick. However, some people came up with some very interesting guesses, given I... Think my clue was initially incredibly random, very random, with just this man likes to add his own unique steps to things, meaning that he dances. And if anybody's seen a Sam Rockwell film, you know that he likes to add a few steps in here and there. And he has got some really good rhythm. And then, of course, there was a picture of a man in a suit and a thumbs up. So if you got it from that, then go you because I wouldn't have done. I was trying to think of something that was a little bit of a giveaway but at the same time wasn't giving away too much. As well as talking about Mr. Wright, which if you couldn't tell already I really enjoy, I also am going to be talking about my 22 years, yep you didn't hear that incorrectly, 22 years of fan fiction writing. And those 22 years don't even cover the years before when I was writing fanfic and didn't actually realise I was doing so because the internet wasn't around or at least not in my household it wasn't and certainly not at my school so I was writing continuations of how I thought books should finish and did not have any clue whatsoever that I was doing something people all over the world were doing for Star Trek. So there's the episode this week. And of course, I will also be talking about the new films and TV shows that are coming to UK streaming platforms in the next seven days, as well as a brief update on my mental health. And I've been giving that a lot of thought recently, and I may well be talking about the serious harm that a bad job can do to your mental health. And I'm not talking about my current job, but my previous one. And if you follow me on social media or anywhere else, you will know that I am incredibly discreet about A, who I work for now, and B, who I've worked for in the past. I'm not going to mention any names because that's their, it's their problem, not mine, though it did affect me. And I don't think it's fair to tar every single person at my previous company with the same brush. It was just a few people who had these issues. 
Oh, before all that, we have got an instalment, a very, very brief instalment, I may add, of My Dreams Are Fucking Weird. <laughs> because why wouldn't they be? If anyone has been reading my social media in the last probably six months to a year, or has spoken with me, they will know that I have a minor issue with my upstairs neighbours. It's not them as people, it's the fact that they have now flooded my bathroom three times. Now you may think, what's this got to do with a dream? It's reality. It sounds weird, but it plays a part. Also, something else that plays a part is the fact that I am looking at my study right now. It has a full-size, massive, great big bed in it that takes up quite a lot of room. And though I originally got the bed so that my sister's children could stay over, they've stayed over a grand total of two times, maybe three in the seven years I've lived in this flat. So I decided that I was going to completely refurbish my study as I am now using it far more for an office. And that refurbishment includes getting rid of the massive great big bed getting rid of all the junk that I have stored underneath it because underneath the bed is the perfect place to store your crap and also getting rid of all the junk that I can't bring myself to throw away that I've been storing underneath my desk namely a printer that my mum got me 15-16 years ago that doesn't work with my Mac and also doesn't work with Windows 10, unfortunately, because it was a good printer. And also two old coffee makers, an old DVD player, an old Skybox, which I, th I actually disconnected about five years ago. And a load of other things that just I no longer need. I don't use them. Unfortunately, with lockdown having been for so long. Oh my God, please let it be over soon. It kind of will be. I haven't been able to get anybody to come out to do a massive house clearance or at least get a white van man to come around and pick up all the stuff that I really want to get rid of. And there's quite a bit. So you may be asking, oh my God, why is she rambling? What has this got to do with her dream? It has a lot to do with my dream. Last Saturday night, I dreamed that I went into my spare room, which is my office, and started to clear things out because somebody was coming round to pick up all my rubbish. So I disassembled the bed, made sure everything was piled up against the wall, made sure all the screws and the bolts and everything else were in a little bag so that they were easily found so somebody could take it away and make use of it. Because it is a very good bed, as I've said already. I also made sure that everything was piled up properly and neatly. Then when I went back into the room, there was water pooled on the floor damaging the carpet the ceiling was bulging with water from their pipes that run underneath their floorboards and above my ceiling and the entire room was full of cardboard boxes that weren't there the last time I looked so in this dream I go into the room start panicking about the fact that I can see the ceiling bulging and know that water's going to come pouring down any minute and I start getting the boxes out of the room I go back in the room having got rid of about six or seven boxes and find that there are even more and they're piled right up touching the bulge of the ceiling where the water is starting to slowly trickle through. I discover that the bed I dismantled didn't need dismantling because it's a Z bed. It's a fold away. And all I can focus on in this dream was the fact that I had a Z bed all along and I could have folded it up, put it away and ignored it 
known that I have stacks of room in that study for more shelving or another desk or moving my chair around or anything else. And I hadn't realised that I had a Z bed. And that was the core focus of the dream. It was my ceiling leaking. My bedroom ceiling is not leaking, just so you know. And the fact that I had a Z bed that I didn't know I had. Now, if that's telling me anything, it is that I need to check my ceiling. (laughs) Random, I know. And also I need to get rid of that massive bed in the spare room. So now we have done the wonder of my dream and I am sure it made absolutely no sense to anyone at all. I'm so sorry. I can get on to the subject you've probably all tuned in for, and that is my review of Mr. Wright from 2015, starring Anna Kendrick and Sam Rockwell. I love this film. In fact, when I picked the film, I had forgotten quite how much I loved it. So it was a pleasant surprise to watch the film, find myself laughing at certain bits that I'd forgotten and enjoying it every single moment that I was watching it. The film starts with a load of children talking about their dreams for the future. You've got a little boy who says he wants to be a lawyer. You've got some of the children saying they want to be firemen or teachers or astronauts. And then this young girl called Martha appears on the screen. And the first thing she says is not, I want to be a driving instructor. Yeah, random. Don't worry. It is, I want to be a T-Rex. And then she starts attacking the camera. She has got so much spirit and so much energy. And then all of a sudden, you are 23 years later. Martha is at her boyfriend's apartment. She is drinking a glass of wine and posing for photos that she's getting ready to send to her boyfriend. This is a point where she says one of my favourite lines. That looks like a butt. Wait, my boobs look like a butt? She is horrified. She's looking in the mirror at the photo she's just taken. And all she can see is her boobs look like a butt. And that's the first thing she says. She's then dancing around the kitchen, preparing food, which catches fire. So she ends up ordering a Chinese takeout. And then she falls asleep on the sofa. The next thing you know, her boyfriend has shown up with another girl and tells her that he needs constant validation and this is something that Martha can work on. He then also proposes that they have a threesome. Him, the girl he's brought home with him, and Martha. Martha tells him that that's a crock of shit. She calls him on it. And then she leaves the apartment, taking the wine with her. Believe me, I don't blame her for that at all. Enter Sam Rockwell, wearing a bright purple shirt, eating a banana and dancing his way through the lobby of a hotel. It's rather exclusive, rather expensive looking, and he's heading to one of the rooms in the hotel to meet a client who hired him to kill her husband. Unfortunately, what she does not realise about Sam Rockwell's character as an assassin is that he no longer believes in killing people for money. However, he does believe in killing people 
who hire him to kill people for money. So instead of murdering the husband, he kills the wife after telling her murder is wrong. He just shoots her in her doorway and then dances off. What we hadn't seen previous to this was the fact that Sam Rockwell's character, whose name you don't discover until later, but I'm going to tell you now, it's Francis. Francis Munch at that. What we don't find out until after he's killed his client is that a group of people are searching for him. They are led by someone called Hopper, who is played by Tim Roth. You may recognise him from shows like Lie to Me, which I actually really love and I believe is now on the new Disney Plus Star Channel. Hopper is with this group of mercenaries who have been hired to get Francis, Sam Rockwell's character. However, when they (laughs) encounter him in an open space, he knows they're screwed. In fact, he knows so well that they are screwed. He refuses to go in with them because he knows that Sam Rockwell would just obliterate them, even though they are armed to the hilt, trained mercenaries, and they have him outgunned. Unfortunately, he doesn't need guns, or he doesn't need many guns, because he is an efficient shot, and he's very good at his job. He was well-trained. In fact, Hopper trained him, which is why he knows that Francis is going to be deadly. In the culmination of this one scene, they are in a ballroom that has been set up for a wedding. There is a great big wedding cake. All the wedding guests have been frightened off by the guys with guns, understandably, And Francis only needs enough time to shoot a few of the guys, get the knives from by the cake, and throw them at the remaining assassins. And they're done. That's it. The scene is over. He does some really flashy dance moves in this moment as well. And they're great. They always are, to be fair. He's just entertaining. Martha is at home drinking, hiding in her closet, and mourning the loss of yet another really shitty boyfriend. In fact, she is so drunk that she tells her housemate, Sophie, that she wants to do something terrible. Cue a nightclub scene. She is absolutely wrecked and having fun on the dance floor when they decide it's time to leave because she has definitely had enough to drink. She is... On her way home with her friends, Sophie, and another girl whose name I didn't actually catch. I'm so sorry. And she really wants to drunk text her ex. Warning for everybody. Do not pick up your mobile phone when you're wrecked. Especially if you're wrecked because you've had a disastrous split. Absolute nightmare. Biggest mistake you could make ever. Trust me. Her friend Sophie works with cats at a sanctuary, I think. It might be at the vet's or a cat grooming parlour, something like that. Anyway, anyway, Sophie recommends that Martha comes with her to work the next day, purely because it is going to distract her. Meanwhile, Hopper has been given a brand new identity by whoever wants him to kill Francis or bring Francis in. It's never really clear what he's meant to be doing. And this new identity happens to be an FBI agent. And he's also been given access to the local FBI office and local law enforcement. So whoever he is working for, I think it may be the CIA, 
is incredibly influential. While at the cat sanctuary, Martha sees a cat that she believes is her soul. It's such a random comment, but she's wearing cat ears, looking very, very cute and very teenager. And she sees this cat and tells Sophie, this is my soul. So she opens the door to this psycho cat's cage and it attacks both her and Sophie. In fact, she can't stop talking about how when the cat was attacking, it kept on pissing in Sophie's face. That made me laugh so much, seriously. All she kept on saying, Sophie was like, no, don't talk about it anymore. Don't talk about it. Well, maybe it's just, I can't believe he pissed in your face. Frustrated and annoyed with Martha, Sophie tells her friend to go home that the day is over and she just needs to leave. So Martha, on her way back to their apartment, stops in one of those little shops, kind of like a quickie mart or in the UK, a co-op. And this is where she meets Francis for the first time. He is immediately entranced by her. She is so absorbed in what she's doing that she is barely aware of him. However, when she turns a corner, she knocks a display of condoms and they go flying. It's at that point that she sees Francis for the first time. He manages to catch all of the condoms and she is fascinated. And at that point, he thinks she is confident, but she doesn't see it. And he tells her, (laughs) he actually, the thing that really gets me with their relationship is that he is always 100% honest with her, but she doesn't believe him. She thinks he's joking because even on their first meeting, he tells her I'm on the run from international assassins she thinks he's joking it's oh this is this is a bit of a game so they go on a date after he persuades her they're walking through the park when he actually tells her about himself including I kill people but not so much anymore (laughs) which is like oh okay whatever she takes it as a joke as most people would they're not going to sit there and say you're telling me that you're a murderer or you're telling me that you're an assassin, why would you reveal something like that about yourself to someone who's a total stranger? We then see a sniper has Francis in his sights. But somehow, I have no idea if he's got supernatural powers or he's just so tuned into everything. He senses that there is someone watching him. He ducks when the first shot is fired and then he spins Martha out and pulls her in when a second shot is fired and he tells her that someone just tried to kill him and thus begins their first adventure together. You can really see that they have a chemistry and they're starting to connect. At one point, they're in this bar that is really old New Orleans. In fact, the music is so appropriate. It's a song called Boom Boom Room by Totsi. I had to look it up because I'd never heard of it. But at the same time, I was sitting and dancing to it while I was watching the film. It has this real weird jazz Creole vibe going. And I really think it suits the film perfectly. By the end of their evening together, they're wearing heart-shaped pink glasses, beads and bitch number one t-shirts that are bright pink. And they both carry it off really well, to be fair. They go back to Sophie and Martha's apartment and then they sleep together. But as Martha is very quick to point out when Sophie starts to judge her, we only slept together and he cuddled me, and that was it. There was no sex. At this point, we meet two guys called Vaughn and Johnny. 
they want to take over a criminal family. In fact, Vaughan wants to get rid of his brother so he can take the power from the rest of the family. His brother has got serious anger issues, and I mean serious anger issues. He flares up at the slightest thing. The next morning, after Martha and Francis spent their night together, Francis is out on a walk, listening to some music on the street, unaware that he's being watched. He is so high on the fact that he made a connection with somebody that all he does is tell this guy that he meets, I think I'm in love. And back at the apartment, Martha is making breakfast for her friend and really high on life. She's finally got her mojo back. And I'm not talking the mojo you saw before she discovered her boyfriend was cheating on her. I'm talking the mojo she had when she was a T-Rex at the age of five. It's amazing. That evening, Francis and Martha go on a classy date where he tries to get Martha to accept the nickname Monster. It's at this point she tells him, well, it's better than Martha Agatha, which is the name her parents gave her. However, just as they're about to order food, Francis notices somebody at the bar who flashes his gun at him. He is furious that his date has been destroyed. He goes outside with this guy and tells him, look, I'll kill you later. And at this point, the potential assassin makes a massive mistake. Having seen how connected Martha and Francis are, he threatens Martha. Francis is furious. He tells him, you had to do it, you had to threaten the girl, I really like her. And thus begins a beautifully elegant and graceful dance. Because that's what it is, though, okay, the guy ends up dead and Francis ends up with some blood on his shirt, which he's not happy about, obviously. But it is a dance. It is so graceful, the movement of his feet. Even the kicks to the head are so gracefully done. It looks lovely. Once he's killed him and dumped him in the trash, he goes back to Martha in the bar. And that, as far as he's concerned, is that. Vaughan and Johnny, you remember I mentioned them a while ago? Well, they're now talking to Richie, Vaughan's older brother, you know, the one with the temper problem. While they're in this meeting, Johnny, who is slimy git, really, he mentions Francis to Richie and to Vaughan and says maybe he could be the solution to their problem. Of course, they know, and I'm not sure if Richie is aware, that if they can get Richie to hire Francis to kill somebody else, Francis will actually kill him instead because he doesn't like the whole killer for hire thing. And then we snap back to Martha and Francis. Finally, she asks him for his name, which, as I said, we don't actually find out until we're about two thirds of the way into the film, because at this point he says, I hate my name. Is it okay if we don't talk about it? Martha, sensing this is a sensitive subject, sort of backs away and says, yeah, that's fine. He finally says, in an effort to change the subject, do you want to see a trick? Now, when somebody says to you, do you want to see a trick? The first thing you think is, oh, he's going to pull a coin out of my ear. Or maybe he's going to produce some handkerchiefs or he's going to give me a bouquet of flowers. No, not Francis. Francis picks up a freaking carving knife from the kitchen 
and then throws it up in the air. Martha freaks out, backs away, and Francis catches the blade. She's about to ask him to leave because, as far as she's concerned, and she tells him, this whole thing is crazy, I don't even know you, I don't even know your name. And then he throws a knife at her, and she catches it. He tells her this beautiful explanation of how he caught the blade, and how he was sure that she would catch the blade. At a later date, he does actually admit to her he wasn't sure she'd be able to do it, but he, he believed that she could. She knows that she should be absolutely freaked out with the whole thing. But then she's fascinated at the same time because she gets this high. I suppose she's got an adrenaline kick from the whole thing. And thus starts a circus act. Basically, they are throwing knives at each other. In fact, at one point, they get a cleaver. I think I'd be running for the door about that point because my hand-eye coordination is shockingly crap. They spend the night together because Martha is so turned on, she basically jumps him. And then the next morning, he takes her to a meet where he is being hired by someone. He is talking with this guy and Martha is sitting there in the car listening to some music when all of a sudden something that this man has said annoys Francis enough that he pulls a gun out with a silencer on it and shoots him. At that point, Martha realises that all, every single time he's been telling her, I'm on the run from assassins, I've just killed somebody, oh, I kill people for a living, he wasn't joking. As she believed he was, he was 100% serious. And that's enough to freak out anybody. Seriously, I think I'd be completely freaked out at that point. Because the idea of somebody telling me, I'm a killer, I'm a killer, ah la 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 la, as though it's an, a normal part of conversation. He throws this career out there so casually that anybody is going to think, yeah, right, that's bull. Or whatever, you just don't want to tell me what you do for a living. Until that point, she believed the whole thing was just a joke. But now she knows it's not. Francis doesn't want Martha to think he's a bad person, but as with most people, she struggles to process what he's told her and what she saw. Probably more what she saw than what he told her because I think with a lot of things, it is see it to believe it and this was one of those cases. Vaughan, Johnny and Richie are having another meeting. They know that Francis and Martha are together and they have Martha's address. So their plan, clever or not, is to go to Martha's house, hold Martha hostage, and persuade Francis to do what they want. Martha is still processing everything that she has witnessed and everything that she has been told by Francis about what he does when Hopper and his partner show up. He tells both Martha and Sophie that... Francis is incredibly gifted at what he does. He's also dangerous and chaotic and just very, very good at his job. At that same point, Francis is calling Martha, trying to get her to talk to him. He needs to see her. He really is absolutely enamoured with her. After Hopper left, Martha obviously had a lot to think about. 
But then when she leaves the apartment the next morning, Hopper is still sitting outside. He continues to tell her his tales all about how Francis is so bad. And you can see that there is this tiny bit of doubt in Martha because though she knows that he has killed people, she's even seen him doing it, she still has feelings for him. And Hopper even confirms that Francis will be no danger to her because he cares about her. That's one of the things that Martha is so desperate to actually comprehend. Am I in danger? That's what she keeps on asking. And Hopper keeps on telling her these tales. And then finally she gets the answer she needs. No, you're not in danger because he cares for you. Hopper is still outside when a grenade is thrown on the stairs of the apartment. He's not impressed because he, as he tells Francis, or yells to Francis, I taught you that trick. I taught you everything you know. Francis then comes up from behind him and uses a taser and then drags him into Martha's apartment because, of course, she needs more hassle and more stress from somebody. She really needs all of this, like a hole in the head. And she really doesn't need a hole in the head. The funny thing is, even though Martha tells him at that point that they need to take a break, she really doesn't want to. And you can see that when she looks at him. At that point, she reveals that she knows his name. And Francis is furious because he knows that the only person that could have told her is Hopper. And Hopper is lying on the floor completely out because he was tased. So Francis just goes over and continually kicks him so angry that he revealed the name that he really hates. He could have probably gone through the entire film with no name because he had so much character it didn't matter. It would just make it difficult to talk about the film. The guy wearing the bright coloured shirt, the guy wearing the, the clown nose. He'd have had multiple names but it wouldn't have been the name that he was actually born with. Hopper didn't arrive at the apartment building alone. At that point, a message comes through on his walkie-talkie. There are 12 unfriendlies headed their way and they're all armed. Francis is livid. All he wants to do is protect Martha. So they're leaving the building when half of the dozen arrive and they start shooting. Martha then says that he needs to do what he needs to do so whether that's killing them or not she's going to be fine with it things are going really well until one of johnny and vaughan's henchmen a guy called steve who isn't massively impressed with the weapon he's been given just as a note shoots francis in the hand with a load of buckshot there's a funny exchange where martha thanks him for not kidnapping her and then Just as you think things are going to go really well, Francis is knocked out with a baseball bat by Steve and Martha is taken hostage by Johnny, who really gives me the creeps. I don't know if it's his facial hair or the way he he looks plastic and I think that's intentional. He looks like somebody who really cares about the grooming, has had stacks of Botox and maybe has face a facelift of some kind because he really does look way too groomed while francis is lying on the floor hopper wakes up he comes down and he shoots the remaining 
gang members that Francis hadn't killed because he promised Martha he wouldn't kill anybody else, even though she'd given him permission to do so. Then his partner shows up, and Hopper shoots him three times in the chest, because he's now got everything he needs. He's got Francis right there, Francis is vulnerable, Francis is weakened by the fact that he's been shot, and Hopper knows that he's going to win. However, turning round to kill his partner leaves Francis with a few moments to get away, and that's exactly what he does. Back at Richie's house, Johnny and Vaughan are talking to Richie, and Martha is tied to a chair in Richie's office, laughing at them. Vaughan is less than amused. (laughs) I don't think anybody really likes being laughed at unless they're a comedian. And he's not, he doesn't consider himself a comedian. He considers himself the rightful leader of the family organisation. When Richie tells Vaughan and Johnny to A, arm everybody in the building because they know that Frances is going to be coming to rescue her, and B, take her somewhere that she can't be seen and can't annoy them anymore, Johnny and Vaughan are in, I'd say, seventh heaven. They start slapping her around, they are bullying her, they are demeaning her and she's just laughing at it and she's like you're gonna be you're in so much trouble he is going to kill you steve remember the guy with the buckshot has been given a better weapon this time around and he's outside rolling up a cigarette and eating gummy bears when francis arrives francis being his usual genial self asks steve how he is and then asks how many men there are in the building and steve tells him He is making, in a weird way, he's making a friend that earlier knocked him for six and shot him with buckshot. But Steve actually says, oh, they're not paying me enough for this and I don't really like them anyway. So (laughs) they really did hire the wrong people when they did this. It was kind of like, we're going to hire people really, really quickly because we need someone who can shoot a gun. But Steve is like, this isn't worth dying for. And he knows that they are in shit. Francis shows up in Richie's office. Basically, all he wants to do is find out where Martha is. He speaks to Richie and he essentially tells him, guys, this was the plan. They wanted to hire, they wanted to make it out that you hired me so I'd come and kill you because they know that's what I do. At that point, Vaughan is pissed. Francis sees that Vaughan is having a problem with the automatic weapon he's got. He can't fire it. And he's trying desperately to fire it because he wants to goad Francis into shooting his brother. Unfortunately, Francis takes the gun from him, seeing that he's having issues, sorts it all out for him, and then Vaughan shoots himself in the foot. Literally shoots himself in the foot. I don't know if this is a metaphor. It was a clever one if it was, but he shoots himself. And then he shoots his brother because he knows there's no way now that Francis is here and he's made his intentions 100% clear, he knows that Francis isn't going to kill his brother, so he does the job. Francis is still searching through the house for Martha when he comes across Bruce, who is a great big guy who was Richie's right-hand man. Bruce is definitely incredibly protective of Richie. He has no idea that there's a coup taking place, 
and he probably would be where he's needed if he had. Unfortunately, he'd be too late because Richie's already dead. However, Bruce is standing in the doorway of this storeroom and they end up having a conversation. (laughs) And when Bruce shows that he has skills in karate, first of all, Francis thinks it's taekwondo and then Bruce corrects him. But that's another thing entirely. Francis seems to have a very random way of acting. He's always in there for a conversation. It's not, I'm going to kill you, blah, blah, blah. It's no, he's no Arnold Schwarzenegger in Terminator. He is a very, very colourful character. And he has a conversation with Bruce and basically says to him, look, you can't use the karate because it's unfair. I don't have that skill. I don't know karate. And Bruce says to him, but you've got a gun. So that's an unfair advantage. At that point, Bruce kicks him in the face and Francis picks his gun back up. And then Bruce goes and picks up a grenade and pulls the pin. So he's standing there panicking because it's like, oh my God, what have I just done? I've I've just pulled the pin on a grenade. I'm going to die. So his nerves are completely shot at this point. When Francis puts the pin back in, sits him down and pours him a drink. At that point, Steve shows up and Francis says, Steve, this is Bruce. Bruce, this is Steve. He's just had a traumatic moment. He then leaves to go and find Martha. They are both leaving Richie's house when Hopper shows up and starts to shoot at Francis with a beanbag gun. And I don't know anybody else. It's like kind of like paintballing. You think that it's not going to hurt because it's a ball of paint. However, it's the velocity that has an impact on you. And a paintball hurts when it hits you. I've play, I've I've been paintballing and I ended up with damaged toenails. I actually lost a toenail, which is really random. I even ended up with a bruise on one of my fingers. I started my job, my new job the next day, and I had bruises all down my side I had a bruise on my head because so I banged myself and I had a bruise on my little finger which is so random just one tiny little bruise on my little finger and I've got very small hands so that was a really good target to hit I think it was my brother-in-law who did it but it doesn't really matter the whole day was great fun anyway he is hit with a load of these bean bags And as they're fighting, douchey Johnny shows up and grabs Martha. He is a psychotic bully who was bullied for a time at school. And he tells her this horrible story about how, when he was a child, this kid had bullied him so much. And he was much bigger than him. The kid was much bigger than he was. So he went to damage something that this guy cared about. And that just happened to be a turtle. And he squashed this turtle. And he gets so much pleasure out of telling Martha this. And it's at that point you see Martha, five-year-old Martha, coming to the fore, hugely confident, knows that she can do what she needs to do. And they get into a fight. He is sure he is going to win because he's bigger, he's stronger. But she's faster. And she has incredible reflexes as has been proved by the little game that her and Francis played with the knives. The music during this scene, which shows 
Hopper and Francis fighting each other and Johnny and Martha fighting each other reminds me just a tiny bit of the boss level in old 1980s computer games, you know, where it gets a little bit more dark and serious and tense. And that's exactly what this sounds like. It's so cleverly done. Martha manages to take Johnny down with a knife. After she's bashed him over the head, of course. She has to knock him out somehow. Francis isn't having quite as much luck in his fight with Hopper as Martha had in hers. In fact, until they're handcuffed together, he's not having any luck at all. Hopper is absolutely decimating him. But that could be partly down to the fact that Francis has been shot and knocked out on multiple occasions. However, the moment they're handcuffed together, Hopper knows he's in for it. In fact, his first words are, oh shit. Nothing else. He just knows that he is in a world of trouble. Martha is running through the building, desperately trying to find Francis when Vaughn finds her. He shoots her in the ear and then through some amazingly clever slate of hand, she turns the gun on him and fires it. She tells him at that point, I'm a T-Rex, harking back so well to the bit at the beginning where she's attacking the camera, all energetic and confident. She's definitely back. Outside, Hopper and Francis are still fighting. Well, they're not actually. They're lying on the floor in the pouring rain. Francis has had enough at this point. He uses his gun to shoot the chain holding the cuffs together and then walks away as Hopper is picking up a gun and aiming to shoot at Francis. Steve shoots Hopper. Francis at that point says to him, oh, you'll have a great day. There's a $5 million bounty on him. So Steve, who initially caused all the problem by knocking Francis out at the apartment building, has now come good. He didn't shoot Francis in the house when he had the opportunity to do so because Francis was distracted when he was putting the pin back in the grenade and he was comforting Bruce and at that point he had no intention of doing anything other than finding Martha and then he saved Francis's life. The only thing that Francis actually wants from him at that point is the gummy bears because he loves green ones. When Martha and Francis find each other again Martha is so happy to tell him that she blew two guys and he says you blew two guys your first time that's amazing He's so proud of her because he could see that spirit in her when they first met. It's like he has a sixth sense when it comes to her and when he when it comes to other things as well, but with this particularly, he has a sixth sense. The film doesn't end there. It doesn't end with them walking off into the sunset and happily ever after, though it would be quite nice if it did. It ends two months later. We're in Le Chow, northern Vietnam. Well, we're not in northern Vietnam. Martha and Francis are. Earlier in the film, she mentioned that she had a fascination for archaeology. And it seems that they're doing their thing. He gives her an option of going to Thailand or somewhere else. And I don't know why I can't remember where this somewhere else is. 
but I can't. And he knows that there are snipers watching. Francis helps Martha to make the decision on their next destination, which ends up being Thailand. And she's really happy with that choice. And I think that he brings out this lively, emotional and a little bit unusual character in her, which is really refreshing because normally the girl is a little bit of an oddball and she struggles, whereas this film is all about them and she gets everything that she deserves at the end of it. And it's not bad deserve, it's a good deserve because her ex-boyfriend was a jerk. And Francis, for all his faults and the fact that he is a little bit insane and he is a killer, a hired killer at that, treats her the way she deserves to be treated, like a princess. Anyway, they know that they've been followed and there is a sniper hiding nearby. They're waiting for the order to shoot. However, they're only paying attention to Francis because as far as they're concerned, he is the target and that's all they need to worry about. Francis, knowing that he's being watched, writes something on a great big white tray that came with their soup, turns it to the camera or the sniper in this instance, and all it says on it is, where's the girl? The next thing you see is Martha with a gun and a silencer pointed directly at the sniper. I know it sounds really strange because it's a film about murder and a killer, but it's also a romance. It is, and it's funny. It's very funny. I love the interaction between Anna Kendrick and Sam Rockwell. And I have to be honest, I like Sam Rockwell in pretty much anything. He is the only highlight to Iron Man 2. And I'm saying this as someone who loves the Iron Man series. Iron Man 2 was the weakest one, but Sam Rockwell in it was amazing. He brings that same energy to every single role he does, whether it's a serious role like um, Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri, or a tit like the one he played in Charlie's Angels 1. You know, the one with Drew Barrymore where he woos her and he's all charming and geeky and everything else. And then it turns out he's the bad guy. If you haven't seen it yet, I'm so sorry. However, this was a film that went under the radar. It had a lot of competition, to be fair. It came out the same year as The Revenant, The Martian, Fifty Shades of Grey, Mad Max Fury Road, Avengers Age of Ultron and Jurassic World, as well as Star Wars The Force Awakens, though that didn't come out until the end of the year. It also was competing with films like Inside Out, however, totally different audience. That being the case, it was going to be a far quieter release. Okay, so now we've talked about what I watched this week, (laughs) and I have actually watched way more than just Mr. Right, just to be clear, especially now that we have a large amount of new content to watch on Disney+. I'm going to talk about UK streaming services. We're nearing the end of the month, so things are just a tiny bit quieter. However, we do hit the 1st of March on Monday, and that is included in this week. So I will be talking about what comes to the streaming platforms on the 1st of March. Over on Netflix, 
there are a few pieces of content coming before the end of February and then we've got a bit more going into March. So on the 26th of February we have a new film called Bigfoot Family. That's animation and I'm not quite sure what it's about though I'm assuming it's something to do with a yeti. On the 27th of February we have for anyone who is a massive fan of the Cornish drama Poldark season 5. I have to be honest I haven't watched any of it. It just, I remember watching the original drama with my grandmother when I was a child, and I was never massively interested. On the 28th of February, (sighs) on the 28th of February, we have a TV show, I think, called Tiger and Bunny, and the hit film Us, starring Lupita Nyong'o. I hope I've pronounced that correctly, and I'm so sorry if I haven't. On the 1st of March, we have a fair few things coming to Netflix. There is a lot of foreign language content, as always. I'm just going to talk about the stuff in English, mostly because I can possibly add something to it, whereas the Swedish, Finnish, Belgian and Czech and Romanian content is not something I'm familiar with. Anyway... On the 1st of March, we have a docu-biography of Notorious B.I.G. called Biggie, I Got to Tell a Story. Then we also have the first two seasons of The Bold Type, which is currently on Amazon if you haven't seen it yet. It's about three women who work in a magazine. We also have Lego Marvel Spider-Man, Vexed by Venom. It's one of their half-hour little things that is in addition to the other Marvel content that Lego produces and also the DC stuff that they produce there's they are equal opportunity and they also do Star Wars there's also Never Back Down 2 which is a fight story of some kind wow I'm really informed on this one something borrowed starring the early 2010s romantic comedy favourite Jennifer Goodwin though I think she didn't exactly fall out of favour but she kind of disappeared off screens when she was more regular in Once Upon a Time and obviously she's also had two children so she was no longer the epitome of the girl next door and there's also the Promised Neverland which is a dark anime series and Trial by Fire a biodrama about the trial and execution of Cameron Todd Willingham. On the 3rd of March we have as I've already mentioned a load of foreign language content a collection of Romanian, Swedish, Czech and Finnish films and TV series and we also have the film Moxie which stars Amy Poehler. On the 4th of March, we have the much-anticipated, and I've seen so many people commenting on this on Twitter and on Facebook, Pacific Rim The Black. Season 1 is going to be available from the 4th of March. And we have a film starring Jesse Eisenberg. I haven't seen him in much since he was in, was it Justice League or Batman vs Superman? It was one of the two. But he's in a film called The Art of Self-Defense. Over on Amazon, things are so quiet you could see a tumbleweed going by before you saw content. On the 26th of February, we have Escape from Pretoria, a film. 
and that is all I know, that is all that has been revealed on there, and they are being super quiet. However, if you are waiting and anticipating the sequel to Coming to America called Coming To, with the number America, that is released on the 5th of March. It's going to have competition though. Over on Disney+, Plus, things are getting busier. Just a bit. Obviously, we had the addition of so much brand new content on the 23rd that if they didn't add anything for a couple of weeks, I don't think people would be saying, but they haven't added any new content. They've added over 250 new pieces of content in a single day. We have episode eight of WandaVision. We're heading towards the end game for this first Marvel show to air on Disney+. Plus. And it has had a lot to live up to, seeing as it was the only piece of content to air from Marvel in over a year. However, you won't have long to wait before the next piece of Marvel content arrives, because no sooner does episode 9 of WandaVision air than episode 1 and possibly 2 of Falcon and the Winter Soldier will be on your screens. Of course, on the 26th of February, we have Ice Age Collision Course, Flickr 2, a series of Mickey Go Local and Myth, A Frozen Tale. And I said that Coming to America would be having competition. I'm not sure how much competition it's going to be as you're going to be needing to pay for it, but Raya and the Last Dragon will be airing as a premier access piece of content from the 5th of March. Looking for a new podcast to listen to, then why not head over to Adam and Josh at Cinematic Blind Spots where they talk about new films across all genres, or at least new films to them. Head over there after you've listened to this episode. Hey guys, I'm Adam. And I'm Josh. And And we we are are Cinematic Cinematic Blind Spots. The podcast where two movie lovers will introduce each other to a new film every week. No matter the year or the genre, nothing is off limits. Available wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow us on all the socials. And remember, whether you are in your car or in the theater, always check your blind spots. Head over there after you've listened to this. Don't forget there's an ending. Okay, so we've talked film, we've talked TV, well, streaming services, and now we're going to talk writing. I'm not quite sure where to start with this. I have a very long history with fan fiction. I think I wrote my first fan fiction when I was the grand age of 12. I've already talked about my favourite book on here a couple of times, and that was Changeover by Margaret May. However, I was not disappointed with the ending, but I wanted to know more. And when her next book came out, The Catalogue of the Universe... I just knew there wasn't going to be a sequel. I wasn't always up for, oh, I need to know the next bit. I want a sequel. I want a sequel. Something that we're very used to with, especially YA books these days. They always seem to have at least two or three follow-ups. But I wanted to know what happened to Laura and Sorry after they left school after he'd done his work in conservation, she'd graduated high school. Were they going to still be together because they were so alike or were they going to grow apart? I know it sounds a really weird thing to think about when you're 12 years old, but I couldn't help it and all I wanted to do was know what happened next. So I decided to write my own version. I think I might still have it, but it was all handwritten 
because I didn't have access to a computer in those days and I certainly didn't know how to type. Not at 12. I learned to type when I was about 14. But I, all I really wanted to do was finish their story. I never did finish it, to be honest. I got distracted with something else and then life continued on. When you're at school, everything always seems so busy. I didn't start writing fanfic again until 1997 when I saw the first episodes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and I knew that while the show was amazing Willow was my spirit so I paired her up with pretty much everybody apart from Xander and Oz funnily enough my favorite pairing always was after season two at least Willow and Spike. So for a couple of years I wrote the odd story here and there. I wasn't completely focused on writing about anything fan fiction. I was just writing because that's what I wanted to do. And then I discovered Roswell in 1999. 180 stories in 18 months. Some of them were over 75,000 words long and some of them were really, really short. But I was able to have no idea where I got the energy from. But I was working full time. I'd come home from work and I would sit at my computer and type for hours. I went to conventions. I joined communities I posted my stories pretty much everywhere on Yahoo groups. I've still got an entire folder full of the feedback I got from the Yahoo groups that there were. I do miss those days. It was just the start of a lazy period for writing because once I stopped writing Roswell when the show was cancelled, I started writing Dark Angel. Then I started writing Harry Potter. I was in the community with authors like Cassie Clare, who obviously is now a very well-known published author, but I was nowhere near as big as they were in the Harry Potter community. It was, I was a tiny fish in a massive, massive pond, whereas in Roswell, because it wasn't such a massive global hit, I was a little bit bigger in a smaller pond, which was quite nice, but at the same time, I do think I produced much better content for that particular fandom than I did for Harry Potter. It's not that I fell out of love with Harry Potter, but come 2005 when I decided to start university again, my writing or my urge to write didn't disappear, but my energies went into a different direction. So instead of writing fan fiction, I was writing college papers. I was writing essays about... Harry Potter, ironically, and Pride and Prejudice and Shakespeare. And yes, I have got a degree in English, but it doesn't mean that I'm any better a writer for it. It really doesn't. I even minored in creative writing and it still doesn't mean I'm any better a writer for it. Once I'd finished my degree in 2010, I decided to dip my toe back in the fan fiction pool. I'd taken five years off. And I figured that would be enough time for a lot of the toxicity that had developed within the fandom, or at least the fan world, to mute a little bit. Yes, I was in the fandom during the 
plagiarism accusations and everything else that you read about on fan law. Not a great time to be a member of any kind of fan fiction community, I have to say. Anyway, come 2010, I thought, maybe it will be safe to dip my toe back in this pool again. It was okay. I wrote a little bit. Didn't really feel the desire to write anything, whether it was original or fan fiction. And then, all of a sudden, one day, that desire came back. I wasn't writing anywhere near the same amount of content, and I blame that completely on social media. I know people will say, oh, you've got control over it, but when you've got something to distract you that is on a screen near to where you're looking already, it can be an incredible time suck. And that's what Facebook ended up being. It was a massive time suck, where once I was producing 75,000 words in a month, I had gone to probably producing about 20,000 words in two months. It was so much harder. I stayed in the Harry Potter fandom for a lot longer than I think I should have done as an adult. The funny thing is, a lot of the people that write fan fiction, and I'm not only talking about those that have found incredible success, such as Cassie Clare and E.L. James, I'm talking about everybody. They are much older. You can tell they are older by the pairings that they select quite often. The younger ones will possibly pick characters so they can self-insert themselves into the story, whereas older writers may well be looking far more for a mature character to write about. Come 2015, I had grown so tired of the vindictiveness that I saw and the constant spamming of people's creations. Okay, we know they're not original, but with a lot of cases, people were painstakingly creating little worlds within a world that was created by somebody else. I know that a lot of people will have issue with the fact that you're playing with somebody else's toy box, but at the same time, if you're doing those characters justice and all you're doing is giving them an ending you think they should have had, I suddenly realised I wanted to write again. Yeah, I keep on doing this, I'll dip my toe in, then I'll say, no, I don't want to do it, and move away. And that is my right as a creator of anything. I can suddenly decide, no, I don't want to do it anymore, and just walk away. And I kept on doing that. And then I found I wanted to write about the Marvel Cinematic Universe. My fiction is still up. And if you're very clever, you may be able to find it. I'm not 100% proud of what I created. At the time, I thought it was amazing. I was really proud of the characterization I'd used and the different stance I'd taken because there are a lot of tropes in fan fiction, starting with the alpha beta relationships and ending with soulmates. Lots of which actually started in supernatural fandom, I believe. I was really happy with the stories I created at the time. I think my writing, even in the last six years, has matured a lot more because I've been writing a lot more professionally. That said, that said, I haven't written any fan fiction in probably 18 months to two years. I want to but I just haven't found the urge yet. So does that mean I qualify myself as a fan fiction writer? 
I'd say I'm a writer. I write for a living, okay? It's not fictional content, it's factual. It's information, it's data, it's analysis. But I still write. I still have the urge to write creatively, but by the end of the working day, every single urge I have to do anything is pretty much vanished. And would I go back to fan fiction? Possibly. If I found the right story, I had the right ideas and they only fit that particular world, then I'd probably go back and write it. However, I am looking far more to create something original. I have some ideas and quite often I will pick up a pen and then I'll switch on the TV and there's my mistake, I've switched on the TV or I've gone to somebody else's fan fiction. Just because I'm not writing for myself doesn't mean I'm not reading it and there are some incredible fan fiction authors out there who have so much skill that I would love to read their original works because they have created a world within an existing world that is so moving, so full of depth. They've created elements in these characters that we already know that are so well done that you just know whatever they came up with as an original novel would be as well researched, as well developed. The characters would be that well rounded. I'd never dismiss someone because they were a fan fiction author. I'd dismiss them if I've read their work and I can tell that they were a fan fiction author and not a good one. But I would never dismiss an author just because I recognised their writing style as one that I have read on AO3 or in years gone by fanfiction.net. So now we've talked about fanfic and I think I've said everything I can say for the time being. I'm sure there is something else and if you want to find out more about what I've written in the past and you are curious about my Marvel stuff, contact me and we can talk. <laughs> God. But now I'm going to talk about mental health. This week... I would say, oh, everything's going amazingly. I'm back at work after having a fantastically relaxing week off. And a few things really came to mind this week, and I don't know why. One of them was my past employment and how quickly things can change from wonderful to shit. To talk about the first one, I need to go back over three years to when I was working for my previous employer. He was verbally abusive. He wasn't physically violent because I'd have immediately phoned the police, but he was verbally abusive. He had no respect for anybody that he worked with or worked for him because he'd always say, oh, we're a team, everybody works together. But in reality, he was the boss. And though he kept on saying, I don't like people referring to me as the boss. He didn't like it if people didn't show him respect either. He had abysmal skills when it came to clients, talking with them, emailing them. We actually ended up losing a client purely because he didn't put them on hold. He started yelling at one of the other members of the team when this particular client was on hold. 
talking about how the client was a wanker. Not something you do when that client is paying you 25 grand a month to retain your services. Anyway, I was thinking about how amazing the difference between my first redundancy and my fourth redundancy were. My first redundancy, I spent a week in bed after they announced we were losing our jobs. They had put us on a 31-day warning, which they had to do by law, and they had no intention of saving our jobs. They'd made that pretty clear. I loved my job and I was really sad at losing it. That being the case, we were basically told that we weren't needed to do our jobs anymore and as they were winding down the publications, we didn't need to do anything. At that point, I was still studying. When I had to go into the office, I would take my work in with me and when I didn't have to go into the office, I would just sit at home with my curtains closed under my covers and I did that. In fact, for the first week after we were told, I spent the entire week hiding under the covers and crying. I was exhausted, I was depressed, and I didn't know what to do. And after that point, I had to accept a job that was significantly lower in salary, which was quite horrific because I had planned to move out. Anyway, that was my first redundancy. And then in 2018, I was made redundant for the fourth time. However, this is the significant difference. I'd only been working for this company for seven months, I think. At the time, I got made redundant and I kind of knew it was coming because we just lost a massive client that I was hired to look after. In fact, when I first started the job, that was all they kept on saying. They were so impressed that I spoke German because they had contacts in Germany. Part of the company was there. I was going to get to travel. All these things, they made this job sound incredible. But to be honest, I had no choice in accepting it because... I was, my contract was up at my other place. Anyway, so I start this job. Everything seems to be okay until the boss reveals his chronic mood swings. And by chronic mood swings, I mean yelling abuse at all the staff. I was the target one day, but this one day was enough to make me realize I was in the wrong job. And I started looking for something else, but the market was very quiet. So I just continued, I had a job It was something and it was bringing in enough money to pay my rent. It was fine. Unfortunately, while I was telling myself it's fine, it's fine, there was something wrong. And it wasn't only, well, it was the job, but it wasn't only the job. It was the way that my brain was processing everything. It had reached the point where instead of dragging myself out of bed and just crying because I didn't want to go into work, I was dragging myself out of bed, crying because I didn't want to go into work, and then contemplating suicide by standing in front of a bus every day. That isn't healthy. My boss was verbally abusive. He was rude. He was aggressive. He was a bully. And because I was terrified of the alternative, I just put up with it. Unfortunately, my mental state degraded considerably. My health was affected. I ended up getting diagnosed with diabetes. My doctor wanted to sign me off with depression because I was in such a bad state. I was sitting in his office crying and he was like, I need to sign you off. And I said, you can't because I don't get paid. It was a really bad situation. This one particular Friday, it was the middle of summer. It was a beautiful summer day, really was. And I'd 
had to drag myself into the office. I really didn't want to go. And everybody in the office knows if you get called down to a meeting before lunchtime on a Friday, you're gone. But normally they let you do the whole day. Quarter to 12 that day, myself and a colleague are called down to a meeting with the operations director. The director of the company hasn't been in all week. The golden boy computer programmer who has worked for the company since it was founded also hasn't been in for the last two days. And you just know that something is going to happen. I was kind of anticipating it. We sat down in the massive, very exposed room, which is part of the jewellery shop, which is another matter entirely. And the operations director says, we're really sorry, but we're going to have to let you go. In fact, she didn't even get a chance to say that. She started with, we're really sorry. And I looked at her and I said, we're being let go. And she said, it's nothing you've done. So I said to her, well, I hope not because I've done nothing wrong. I've done every single thing you've asked. And then she starts crying. I'm sitting there thinking, oh, thank God I'm out of this place. I just I just can't cope with this anymore. I'm so relieved. And I shouldn't have been because I was out of work. And I said, so we'll finish at the end of the day. And she said, no, you've got to go now. We'll pay you till the end of the month. We'll pay you your month in lieu and we'll pay you your holiday. It's like, okay. And then she says, oh, do you want me to tell everybody? Or do you want to tell everyone? And I'm thinking, I don't care. And this is such a contrast to the first time I was made redundant. It's almost as though I've got used to it. You can say what you want. She went back upstairs, told everybody, oh, we're really sorry, but Rachel and Jack are having to leave. And then I just went up there, deleted everything off the hard drive, deleted all my emails and everything else, made sure all the client stuff was where it needed to be, but deleted all my communication with them because I hadn't been told to keep it, hadn't been told to pass anything on to anybody. Nobody else could do my job. I went over to say goodbye to the people that I actually wanted to say goodbye to. One of them said to me, oh, what are you going to do? You must be absolutely devastated. I'm so sorry. So bad. It's a really bad thing to happen. And I just said to her, and... And she said, what are you going to do now? And I said, go and get a bottle of wine and go to the beach. It was about 85 degrees, really, really sunny, beautiful day. I wasn't going to let this ruin it. And in fact, it made it about 10 times better. The funny thing was, every other time I've been made redundant, I've cried a lot. This time I actually got out of the building and I felt as though a massive, great big weight had been lifted off my shoulders. It was like all of a sudden... Everything that had been totally dark and horrible had gone completely. So I was without a job, without any income, and I didn't care. And that's the first time that's happened. Because normally I live, as most people do, not quite paycheck to paycheck, but it's tight enough. And then I get told that I'm losing my income completely which would normally set me into an absolute spiral of despair and all I could feel was absolute relief it was bliss I've never felt that good about losing a job in my life well I have been babbling on for a very very long time and if you've stuck around this long thank you ever so much for listening seriously. But that's it for this week and I really hope you enjoyed the episode. I release a new one every single week on Thursday so if you like what you hear why not share it with your friends and or family and post a review on one of the many podcatchers out there like iTunes or Podchaser. You can follow me over on Twitter at need underscore three underscore mugs or on Instagram at Ray's Reading Room though that will be changing 
in the next few days. I meant to change it last week. Unfortunately, Instagram decided it didn't like my suggested name change and wouldn't let me do it. Well, I need another cup of coffee now as I definitely haven't had enough and the last cup that I made has gone cold. So I'm gonna go and put the kettle on and until next time, this is me saying farewell.